On this episode of Water Flying, we are discussing the restoration and flying of a turbine G21G turbine goose. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard. We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying. I am sitting at Kenmore Air Harbor with my good friend, Doug DeVries, who is a legendary world traveler, super passionate uh, aircraft restoration, should I say nerd or geek? <laughs> Either uh, <yeah>. one's fine. <laughs> I revel in those titles. <laughs> yes. So uh, incredibly detailed oriented and willing to go to extreme lengths to uh, modify and bring aircraft back to life um, that other people normally, it's, it's just extraordinary what this man is willing to do. And even better, once he restores these aircraft and modifies them, he takes them out in the environment and does what they're meant to do, which is go on amazing adventures. So Doug DeVry, it's so great to have you uh, with me tonight uh to tell uh your story because it's a very worthy story worth telling <laughs> well it's good to be here and uh you and i have known each other for a long time i think in 2006 we met and went to australia and you filmed a little jaunt in the steerman over there we actually made a little video, jaunt a little jaunt a little three thousand <laughs> miles in the outback and we made a film about it called the great circle air safari not plugging that but. yeah yeah we should <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, for me, uh, here we are, Kenmore Air, right here at north end of Lake Washington. And this is where I got my seaplane rating in a beaver 20 years ago, almost yeah. almost to the day. So it's all come around. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, and unknowingly, we had uh, dinner with your flight instructor. We did. John Gowie, <laughs> to this day, has rude the fact that he ever gave me my license. But it's, <laughs> it's all worked out. <laughs> so, Doug, let's start uh, back at the beginning, because uh, there was a seed that was planted somewhere along the way that started this uh, whole crazy adventure and obsession that your wife is Robbie is very understanding about. <laughs> she is. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did it all begin? Where, where was the seed planted originally? Well, I think the idea of getting involved in restoration and ventures um, started back when I read a book by Stephen Koontz called The Cannibal Queen. Many of you will remember that. Stephen Koontz was a best-selling author of Flight of the Intruder. And later on, he wrote a book. He bought a Stearman. He wrote his first nonfiction book, and it was about flying that Stearman to 48 states with his son that he was reconnecting in. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of, as opposed to the fighter pilot books, it was kind of a stop and smell the roses book. Mm -hmm. And I read it, and then I thought, boy, that'd be so cool to have a Stearman and fly it around like that. But I kind of put it off, and a few years went by, and then I thought, you know, I think I should do that. So I actually went out to Chino Airport, and I thought, well, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe I should find out whether Stearmans are really fun to fly. And I went up <laughs> with a guy, Hartley Fulston, and, and it was fun to fly. So at that point, it was a matter of going to buy one or 
restore one. So I bought a pile of parts down in uh, Brawley, California, which is near the Mexican border, from this old guy, Ken Bemis, who uh, had been a crop duster. And uh, I went into his uh, old hangar, and it was this mystical thing full of Stearman parts. And we walked around and put together a series of parts, and I trucked it up to my hangar. And five years later, we had a restored Stearman. But uh, the part, I remember asking Ken Bemis, I said, well, where did that engine come from? Well, I've, I've had that since 1949. It was in a chicken coop. But I had the shaft up, and I put a bucket over so there isn't any water got it. So the, the engine had been sitting around. It's all good. Don't worry. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I got started in the whole. Um, well, I have to mention that Stearman was a grand champion at AirVenture as well. So it wasn't just a little reassembly project. <laughs> well, it was a wonderful therapy for me because I was uh, running a company, starting a company during that time period. And uh, for me, it was uh, cheaper than therapy. Uh, maybe not cheaper. I don't know. It was more effective than therapy. So every night after work, I would go out and work for two hours on that aircraft and then work on it during the weekends. And it, I think man was, we were designed to work with our hands and there's nothing like working with your hands to kind of restore your soul. And I so appreciate that and respect that with you and, uh, admire that because, uh, uh, I admire people with passion and I admire them even more when they put passion into action. And that's what introduced us together because you took that steerman and uh, we went to Australia. We did. We had a yeah. good and time. Circumnavigated Australia, raising money for the Royal Flying Doctors. Yeah, with a bunch of crazy Australians. <laughs> that was. You remember their mantra? So here, the official FAA regulation is it's eight hours between the bottle and the throttle. Over there, it was eight feet between the bottle and the, the throttle. The that, was, that was their, ma- their mantra. <laughs> Jim Wally. Uh, I'll never forget. I mean, we had a cast of characters, but Jim oh, Wally was, was um, uh, the, the bantering that went back and forth with okay. him. I remember doing inverted flat spins over Cooper PD, and he was, damn you, McCaughey, I'm going to get you sick if it's the last thing I do. <laughs> you know, and those guys have ended up uh, lifelong friends. Yeah. And we've done a couple more adventures together. They actually went up to Alaska. They got so excited about seaplanes. They went up to Alaska and all got their seaplane ratings from Don Lee up there. Oh, that's great. A few years ago. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those. That's a great thing about aviation. You get to meet. Small world yeah. and great people. And uh, you also did a beaver, uh, which was had a huge story behind it. A little story behind it. Yeah, we finished the Stearman and got looking around for something else weird to do. And um uh, we ended up settling on a, on a beaver, and I was looking for a project. And uh, we found this project in Denver, Colorado, and it was wrecked. And the, the, <laughs> <laughs> we started looking at it, and it had the paint job from the movie Six Days and Seven Nights that Harrison Ford did back in 97. And turned out they used six beavers in that movie, and this was one of them. The one they crashed. Yeah, accidentally. <laughs> I've heard the whole story from, it was over in Kauai, actually. They accidentally crashed it, but it was, it was, the fuselage was smashed. The wings were broken. The spars were broken. You could fold it in half. And so it was a perfect project for us. So we got a truck and trucked it out to California and started the restoration down there. In the meantime, I ended up moving up here to Seattle just to fly seaplanes. So we moved it up here and we, we finished that aircraft in 2006. That was um, literally a rivet up. Yeah. restoration yeah we built a jig for it because it was all out of whack and we had all the engineering drawings for it so we actually brought it back to its original dimensional specifications and you still have that airplane today i do yeah, yeah. we um myself and mark shoning after in 2008 we took 
two beavers on straight floats, and we circumnavigated Canada through the um, Northwest Passage and went up to Resolute and then made an attempt to the magnetic North Pole, which we didn't make because the, the ice didn't cooperate with us. We were on straight floats, so we could only land on water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Did uh, I mention that Doug has a passion for adventure? <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, yeah, that's that was a trip that lasted six weeks and was really, really, really quite an adventure. And I think that had some illuminations uh, for what you wanted for the future. Probably were the the incubator for what we're going to talk about today was the genesis. Probably started on that trip. You're right because uh, the two we had lots of challenges, but two of the biggest challenges was fuel, of which there is no 100 low lead fuel up in the high Arctic. So we had to ship most of it by Canadian icebreaker in uh, drums. <laughs> Again, I want to stress, <laughs> when we say we're going on a little trip with Doug DeVry, we're, we're shipping fuel by icebreaker up for fueling stops. <laughs> it's amazing stuff people do. But, and the other obvious challenge was um, the weather, which uh-huh. is atrocious all the time. And uh, we... We're on beavers and straight floats, which are great aircraft, but there was many times when we wished we had an extra engine and a little bit bigger hull to handle the big water. So we came away from that trip knowing and believing that if we ever want to go back, we probably ought to have something that runs on jet fuel, and we probably ought to have something with two engines. And so that kind of started the whole thought process about The genesis. Now, now let's see, how many turbine multi-engine seaplanes are there so that that really <laughs> breaks down the field to a pretty limited group of aircraft it does and of course you chose one that's not probably one of the more common ones of the few there are yeah there's only four left <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah you're right that pretty much narrows the field to a turbine goose if you're down to <laughs> twin engine turbine aircraft so but uh and the other thing is that you know you you've my friends have always kind of made fun of me in that the normal progression for a pilot is you start in a Cessna 152 and then you move up to a 182 maybe and then you, if you're doing really good, you get a 210 or a Bonanza and then maybe you get a turboprop. But the whole point is you're just spending more and more money to go faster and faster. I like to spend more and more money to go, to slower, go slower and slower. And slower <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> because because you had a bonanza, I think, if I, I remember did. correctly, and you went to a steerman. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I had no soul, but but you know, but I mean, the, but the the point of the whole thing. These are all backcountry aircraft or seaplanes, and and my partner for the Arctic trip, I think, makes a great point. He says, you know, if you're in a seaplane, you're going someplace cool. Exactly, you're going. That's to why we do this. A lake. You're going to a river. You're going to an inlet. You're not going to an airport. You 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 are going to someplace cool, and it forces you to go cool places. Yes, that's the great thing about it. Absolutely, and that's why we do what we do, and that's why I cannot believe that the our current. We were just talking about the population of seaplane pilots. I can't believe that it is so small because in a world where extreme sports and outdoor adventure and Four-wheel drive vehicles and, and RV camping is so prolific and popular. Why the seaplane population still struggles to maintain our numbers? Because, I mean, it's the cat. We get to do what other people dream of. And, and most people can't even dream of how beautiful and magnificent 
the places that we get to access are. Well said. I mean, I mean, that's, that's, that's it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I I just don't know how else to say it. And it's such a, a a good fortune to be able to do it. We're so, uh, and it's something that having the ability and the appreciation to be able to go the places that we go and see the things and know how few people ever get to access some of the places we go. Yeah, and, and, and the beauty of being on straight floats is that I think it forces you to do that once again. It, it forces you to be creative because, and now we're going to start the old amphib, <laughs> and I don't want to start that. But I have friends that, that have beavers on amphibs, and, and one of them, Mike Lester, several years ago, uh, he knew that I did adventures, and he go, he says, I want you to take me up to Alaska. And his was an amphib. I was straight floats. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, why not? I said, because... I've done this before with Anfib guys, and they always say they're going to stick with me. And then they break the off water. and go to an airport. <laughs> and then as soon as the going gets tough, they're like, you know, I think I'll just land at the strip and refuel. He goes, no, no, I'll, I'll stick with I promise you, I will stick with you all the way to Alaska, and I will only land it on water. All right, so I made him sign a thing. You know? <laughs> so we get to Ketchikan, and we're at the main dock there. You've probably been there. It's big duster dock. Well, for some reason... The airport manager decided they wouldn't let us to keep our planes there overnight. So we had to get them out of the water. So we go around to find a guy. And if you remember Ketchikan, there's the seaplane port, and then literally a couple hundred yards from it is the big 7,000-foot yeah, runway. Yeah, right? yeah, that's very enticing to someone with amphibs. <laughs> Which Mikey could have landed on, but he didn't. He's down there. So we get this guy with a truck and a trailer, and he backs this thing down this gravel bank, and he gets it down in the water. He says, okay, now... You guys, you need to rev up your planes. You need to put drive the plane up on the back of this flatbed trailer, and then I'll start going. But, and I'm going to pull you out while you're still running. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but by the way, I, I don't have enough traction to get up the bank. So, so you, you have, have to, to keep, help me with thrust. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we had to keep the thing running. And the whole thing, I was like, well, this sounds like this, this is going <laughs> to no, go Nothing well. can go wrong here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I get mine out. And then Mike gets it up. And about halfway up, the guy in the truck looks, and he sees the amphibious <laughs> wheels. And he goes, what are you doing? He says, you, you got wheels. You land on the runway. He goes, I oh, signed the contract. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're not flying with Doug DeVries. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and that's, you know, the unique stories that come out of these adventures yeah. that I love so much. I yeah. mean, you don't know it if you're not out there doing it. Yeah. And and again, uh, all I can say is I hope this show is inspirational to other people yeah. to take half, you know, just just do just do something. Dream big, dream up something that's on your bucket list and, and go do it. And uh, you will have the reward. You, you, you know, I always say that the, the person that goes uh, the extra mile gets all the gold. And, yeah. and yeah. you know, I think you've proven that in spades. So you you are now set on getting a uh, kerosene burning multi engine seaplane. Where do we go from there? <laughs> well, there's four in the world, so <laughs> <laughs> four turbine gooses in the world. But they're all running except one. Of course, the criteria is it can't be running. Right? <laughs> it's got to okay. be a project. So we found one in it was actually in Oshkosh, uh, and it was owned by the late Jack Mark who'd been quite a character and a well-known aviator back in Oshkosh. And uh, he had a whole stable full of airplanes. Everything from, literally, you walked in his hangar, there was a 172, and there was a couple of corporate jets. And everything in between, including this turbine goose. 
But it, it had been partially converted to turbines. And I mean, I don't want to get into it, but there's a McKinnon conversion that converted the piston gooses to turbine gooses. And there was a whole series of improvements. And this one had been kind of partway through the series. Retractable sponsons. McKinnon did a lot of the modifications for the right. goose. Right. He, he has a whole list of right. modifications that they did. And his final version was the G21G, which was the most powerful, biggest one. But it, it wasn't a straight course. I mean, over a space of 20 years, he started off with, as you said, the retractable floats and a whole series of things. So anyway, we found this goose there, and it was um, hadn't flown in 10 years and was in suitably bad shape enough to for us to buy So it, it. qualified as a Doug DeVry restoration project. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to get it out. And the goose is not easy to transport because the center section is really hard to get off, and it's 16 feet wide, which makes it too late wide to put on a road. So we found the one pilot in the U.S. that was willing to ferry that thing. And uh, he did. His name is Lauren Olson. You may know him. Mm. He's a character. Anyway, we, we got the thing running enough for him to get in it. And he flew it, and, and he's a, he landed. And I remember when he rolled up, he was pretty white. Because <laughs> everything had failed on that aircraft except the engines. On the, way, the instruments weren't working, and the radios weren't working. <laughs> but, but we got it. He ferried it out. We got it. And then we... Immediately, that was 2010, and we immediately started tearing it down. We I wondered what broke him because he said, he, when I talked to him, he said, now I'll never work for him again. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. no, just kidding. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. absolutely not true. So, yeah. So, but yeah, so now you have this project to start. We do. And the goal is um, so, just a little history here. When the Piston Gremlins were rolling out of Grumman Ironworks back in the late 30s and early 40s, and they, at that time, they were all going to the Navy. Um, the gross weight was 8,000 pounds. The empty weight was about 6,000 pounds. They had 2,000-pound useful load. Navy was happy with that. And then uh, in the 50s, the Navy started selling them off into commercial operators. And as Burke says, it started finding its natural habitat. And the natural habitat for a goose is really coastal waters. It's, it's areas where the, the two engines help terms of mm-hmm. safety and it's areas where you've got heavier waters bigger swells than you would have in an inland lake and so, the characteristics of the grub and flying boats uh from the goose up is that they really handle big water well and uh that's something between burke and yourself that i really like talking about because i think that's very well identified they weren't really used for inland missions. They were right. used for coastal missions in salt water. Right. That's really was the environment that they operated in. Right. So, but this is America, and what do we love most of all? <laughs> more power. <laughs> got to add more power. You got to strap on something Scotty, more. <laughs> Scotty, I need more power. Yeah. And Scotty's like, what's he talking about? We always operate at full power. <laughs> Does he think I'm holding back on him? But no, this is America. We need more power. So, Sure enough, the civilian operators start figuring out how to raise the gross weight, and uh, and then they get into a whole dust up with the FAA about raising the gross weight and everything. But the short answer is, enter stage left Angus McKinnon of McKinnon Enterprises, and he's down in Sandy, Oregon, and he starts developing all these improvements that will raise the gross weight of the aircraft. And ultimately, he starts changing the engines. He puts four piston engines on yep, one. Yeah, I remember that very rare creature. Very rare creature. Can't imagine flying it. 
That lasted for one. I think the one amount hour. of weight and the amount of fuel. I mean, those two things combined with that airplane. So you had one, one engine for the flaps and one engine for the ailerons <laughs> for yeah. on each side. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Maybe it took four pilots to fly it. I don't know. And then, and then he did a turbine conversion, which was smaller turbines, PT-6, 21s, 500 horsepower to begin with. And then ultimately he got up to the PT-6, 27s and 28s. He ultimately got the gross weight. Remember, it started at 8,000 pounds. It got up to 12,500 pounds. So that was our goal when we bought that aircraft, is to get it up to the G21G configuration. And there were... So the, the, the changes McKinnon had made were so extensive that the FAA made him go out and get a new type certificate. They wouldn't mm-hmm. let him do it under an STC. So yeah. there's a new type certificate, and it's it was, called the McKinnon Goose. Yeah, it was a lot of enhancements. Yeah. And I think, uh, real quickly, just to go back to the turbine conversion, the original conversion basically added 50 horsepower aside. Yeah. So it wasn't this huge boost in power. Uh, yeah. The real point there was to get uh, kerosene burning, uh, and it was, you know, 100 horsepower is 100 horsepower. Yeah. Drastically different from the G. Right. Which is a But the other advantage of that, um, those smaller turbine engines, was the reduced drag yep. over a radial engine, which is amazing. That, that's a huge part of it is that reduced drag. So even though you're not getting that much more horsepower, you get a lot. Get a lot more speed. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, that was our goal to take the aircraft from where we found it to the G21G. And there are 29 different modifications to get you to a G21G. And these aren't like add a doorknob these are like completely serious pull the wings apart rebuild the structure of the ribs and put reskin them that's one yeah one out <laughs> of 29 one. so we had 29 of those yeah and then of course us being who we were we of course had a yeah, if you only knew, I can tell you how obsessive. Uh, again, the one thing that uh, Doug shares with me is OCD uh, to an insane level, probably. Yeah. Uh, if anyone else looked at it from a practical standpoint, and I appreciate that about you, because there is nothing that is, I mean, if there's, there, there's just no rationale for the length that you go to on things. None at all. <laughs> None. Other than... I'm an engineer, and that's the fun of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. always said if I never got to fly that airplane, I would not be disappointed because I love the process. The project and the process. And so we did yeah. 17 of our own mods, which included, <laughs> like, converting the flaps to hydraulic and putting completely new environmental control systems in, completely redesigning the lower structure, floor structure, to strengthen it for higher G-loads, and, I mean, stuff like that. So we're up to 46 mods yeah. now. Yeah. 46 modifications, right. significant. So we, I had a couple guys helping me, obviously. I was working on it part-time because I was running a company at the time, but I had two full-time guys working on it. And um, I have a poster that I did when we started the project that said we were going to finish the project in five years and 10,000 man-hours. And <laughs> whoops, surprisingly, <laughs> surprisingly enough, it actually took 10 years and over 30,000 man-hours. But... And, and if, if you ask me, I wouldn't do it if I'd known. But that's the beauty of life, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and, we and once you're we five years do, in, you're not going to stop. You wouldn't do half the stuff yeah. in life if you knew how difficult it was going to be. But so, you look back on it with such fond memories and such a sense of accomplishment. I mean, you put 30,000 hours into an aircraft over 10 years. Right. I mean, you can't help but be so emotionally attached to the aircraft and the experience. It, 
the rebuilding experience was just delightful. I mean, I, I was never bored with it. And, and once again, the fun was there was other guys rebuilding gooses at the time. Whitbear was working on. Addison Pemberton was working on. I remember that one sitting there de-skinned. And, yeah. yeah. And so all of a sudden these guys become your buddies because, I mean, you're in the trenches together. You're trying to figure out, you know, why there's only five rivets at station 55 and the drawing <laughs> shows six. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you're, you're into. But it, once again, it, you get connected with other people that are sharing those kind of things. And that, that's the fun of it. So how many owner operators, you know, I, as we have this conversation, it really uh, resonates with me that how many owner operators know their aircraft as intimately as you know your airplanes. I don't know any owner, you know, there's very few owner operators that get a chance to become so intimately knowledgeable about their airplanes. Yeah, and I think it's just what most people are after the airplane for the flying of it, which we are too, but since we're engineers, we're just fascinated with the other part of it. And probably... The guy that beats me on that is Addison Pemberton, which yeah. is, I mean, the guy's an engineer's engineer. <laughs> he just, and he's just an awesome He's dude. an upcoming podcast, by the way. <laughs> well, he's going to be great because he came in. I, had, I knew him peripherally, but he came over to visit. He came into the hangar, and he had this, um, he had this little pin on or something with a goose on it. And I said, hey, where'd you get that? And he goes, blah, blah, blah. And he takes it off and gives it to me. So here, you can have it. You can have it. So... Uh, all right, so we're going on, and pretty soon I look down, and he's got this big brass belt buckle that's got a goose on it. <laughs> I was like, Addison, where'd you get that buckle? Oh, I got it. You want it? Here. He takes off his belt, and he gives it to me. I was like, all right, thanks, buddy, but I'm not going to admire your shorts. <laughs> I don't we're not, yeah, we're not going any further with this. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, he's just a great guy. Yeah, he is. And, and again, uh, I, one of these unique individuals with endless passion yeah. uh, and an and eye for detail. Yeah. Um, so uh, 10 years, 30,000 hours invested. We won't even get into the expense of it. And, 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 uh, <laughs> oh, it was cheap, Steve. Oh, 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 oh yeah. I, yes, it was. Uh, so uh, there was paperwork to do along the way, I'm sure. Well, uh, whenever you decide to raise the gross weight of an aircraft, it, it attracts the attention of a certain three-letter agency. <laughs> it starts on an F. Significantly <laughs> increased the gross weight by tonnage. <laughs> yeah. And oh boy, they they were there to help, and they help. <laughs> they, they helped a lot. Uh, it was um, it was probably one of the most frustrating parts of it is just how difficult that part was. And just to give you the thirty thousand foot view. Um, they, they had us at two different ACOs. In the middle of the project, they closed it at the Seattle ACO and said, your new ACO is Denver. So all of our correspondence and our visits had to go to Denver. Yeah. And through the course of that... Can we make this any more, less convenient for you? Oh, they could. Because they, <laughs> took, they took, they assigned, through the course of the 10 years, there was four different project engineers. And every different project engineer had a different idea of what was needed for the thing. So... I, I think I spent personally a thousand hours just on FAA stuff on it, but we got there. Wow, we got Again. a one-time STC for it, and we had a, I think I mentioned earlier over dinner, we actually had to develop a whole new pilot operating handbook for it. Yeah, which is really, again, I shared my frustration with that because you have an airplane that is conforming to uh, G twenty one 
G yeah. uh, type certificate. I mean, it, it has every operational characteristic that is inherent to that aircraft because effectively it is that aircraft. And it, yes, and it's probably <laughs> and it's recognized as being that aircraft. <laughs> and if for any FAA folks that are listening out there, um, this isn't Doug DeVries talking. It's Larry Tufel who is <laughs> okay. actually on the mic for this <laughs> yeah, FAA. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't me that said any negative thing about that. It was um, it was Larry Tufel. <laughs> no, but you know it's important. Um, this isn't uh, necessarily slamming the FAA, but also. Uh, maybe this could be used for training purposes uh, to help them understand our, you know, our side of uh, doing a project like this and the challenges that are faced with it. Because mm-hmm. here you're investing 30,000 hours of your time. You're investing bucket loads of money and you're making the, this is a big investment. And one would hope that you would have the support and that they would eagerly help you achieve your goals because if there's anyone that's going above and beyond to make a safe airplane, it's you. I can attest to that. Oh, thank you. And so, you know, that's what's, what's hard is when you're doing such a thorough job as you are, uh, uh, it's, I think we, we expect that they're going to help you and recognize that's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole, Definition of help is quite different from the two different sides. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, there we are. So uh, we've kind of explored this journey, but, you know, sooner or later, you have to take this thing out of the hangar. Well, there's that. Yeah. 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 So uh, now you have this airplane that you've invested all this time, money, and energy into, and you have to do a first flight in it sooner or later. We do. So explain that. Well, give a, let me give you a little background. I'm, I, I mean, I'm just a guy that flies around single-engine pistons planes, and yeah, I, I, they're all tail draggers or seaplanes. And you did not have a multi-engine seaplane rating. I didn't have any <laughs> turbine time. I didn't have any multi-engine time, and I didn't have any multi-engine seaplane time. Now, that's an interesting And multi-engine tailwheel. I would just throw that one in here, too. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting discussion to have with your insurance broker. Because you call them up and go, So, what are your qualifications? <laughs> I, I want to get insurance on my turbine goose. Oh, yeah. So, do you have a multi-engine? Nope. Do you have a multi-engine seaplane radio? Nope. Any turbine time? Nope. Huh. Any multi-tailwheel time? <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, they actually required me to have, it was either 50 or 100 hours, I can't remember. But actually, which was okay, because I, I needed that much to get competent anyway. Well, you know, when you're, during the whole 10 years, I was really well supported by my friend Larry Tufel, who has a turbine goose down in Oregon. Oh, I thought you were Larry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, good point. And Larry was great. He supported us in all different ways. Uh, but Larry would come up every once in a while and tell me how many different ways I was going to kill myself in that airplane. So I was pretty wound up pretty tight by the time they've been, you know, there's nothing worse than having a problem with an airplane. It's thinking about having a problem with an airplane for 10 years. And so I was wound up pretty tight. And uh, I, fortunately, Karen Stemwell introduced me to Burke Mees, who's yeah. legendary among seaplane pilots. And he flew gooses and Aleutians for six years, which is the worst place on the planet to fly a seaplane. So, which, oh, gee, so where's the first place we go with it when we decide to take it out of the local area? Yeah. <laughs> so I got a hold of uh, Burke, and uh, he's a traditionalist. He wasn't enthralled with the turbine idea to begin with. Well, Bert, from Burke's point of view, uh, 
and I know this through conversations with Burke, is uh, I think his original view coming into the project and flying the airplane was the goose was made perfect out of the factory as it was. Right. Why would you mess with that? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But what was really interesting was watching um, his transition of thought process because he ultimately falls in love with the airplane. He does. And he, he, he actually said this to me on the way back from Iceland. He said, Doug, when I think about it, the entire lifetime training I've had was preparing me to fly this aircraft. Yeah. And what he means by that is it's, it's kind of like a, a, a King Air landed on top of a boat. I mean, so I mean, there's part of it that's a cross country. That's a Dougism that I will I will repeat. King Air landed on top of a boat because there's the turbine. Now it's fully IFR rated. I mean, it's a cross country IFR serious get there aircraft. Yeah, but it's still a seaplane. I mean, an amphibious boat, and you can land it on salt water, and you can back it onto a beach, and you can do all kind of stuff. So. That's what he meant was that because he's a captain for Alaska Airlines, so he has all that instrument mm-hmm. and that stuff. Is that it kind of combined his skills, his seaplane skills, with his kind of cross country IFR skills. And you just teased, teased with Iceland. So that's going to be another episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a whole nother adventure. Uh, but yeah, so you have to get Burke in this airplane, which he was less than enthusiastic about. He was, but he's a good sport. Uh, so I think he came down to kind of semi-humor me. And so he came down and we, as you can imagine, it came down two or three times and we thought the plane was ready, but it wasn't, you know, we taxied out and something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So finally, I think in the third or fourth time, he came down and we got it up in the air. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and it was still, it wasn't painted, so it looked like urban camo kind of, you know, it was like this <laughs> aluminum thing. And... uh we're flying around. And I'm happy with that. And uh, he he says, "All right, now we got to land it in the water." I'm like, nah, nah, "I don't think so. We're gonna land in the water the first flight." First flight, yeah. Oh no, we got to land in the water. So we go down to Lake Washington. And we, we actually landed at Renton, which is the south end of Lake Washington, mm-hmm. controlled airport. And we did a couple of runway landings there, and then we took off and we landed in the water. And it was a pretty rough day. It was windy, and there was you know some uh, swells and breakers, and so we were kind of bobbing around out there and. A, a goose sits pretty low in the water in the hull, and the, all the locals that live around there are used to seeing beavers, seaplanes coming in. They're I was going to say, so the the odd thing here is, is we live in a in an or, well, we don't live in, we're in an area uh, you live in that is very used to seeing float planes, uh, but flying boats are not the norm, and out of out of their characteristic of what they're used to seeing land on the water, right? That might cause a problem or two. So we're bobbing around there, and the next thing we know, we see this little 16-foot uh, skiff coming out, and this guy comes up, and he's got a bullhorn, and he's yelling at us. And he's like, are you guys okay? And we're like, <laughs> yeah, we're fine. Okay, so he leaves. And then we, we bobbed around and did some maneuvers on the water, and then we took off. Of course, we're talking to Renton Tower. And uh, he kind of laughs. and goes, oh, you guys caused quite a stir. And we said, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, our phone lines were jammed with people from Mercer Ireland saying there was a plane sinking out of Lake Washington. <laughs> <laughs> it was all because this thing was sitting down low in the water. 
So uh, there you go. I mean, the things you don't expect or think about, and of course, I get a lot of those phone calls when they happen. But again, it was just the mere difference of the locals are used to seeing float planes very prolifically uh, in the local area here, but they weren't used to seeing a flying boat. Right. And and that was all the difference in the world. Yeah. So uh, talk about some of the, the, the learning curves and some of the things you both learn, you know, as, as strong points of the airplane, but also uh, some of the unique characteristics of the airplane. And, and you literally did your multi-engine C in a turbine goose. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not your average path. <laughs> yeah, we had to find the one designated examiner on the planet that could give me my multi-engine turbine seaplane rating or multi-engine seaplane rating in that. But, um, you know, it was a challenge for me to learn because, once again, I'm a single-engine piston guy, and so there was a lot of things to learn. And one of, the, one of the really cool things about the Goose, and it's one of the coolest things, but it's also one of the most challenging things. So what they did with the turbine engines, they moved the engines way inboard from where the piston engines are, which means now you have much less torque arm in the case of a single-engine failure. Mm-hmm. So you have less adverse yaw and all that. Further, they angled the engines back at five degrees towards the tail. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it basically gets all this airflow um, from both engines over tail. So you have rudder authority on the ground or, or on the water. And you have a lot more rudder authority because of this airflow that's pointing back. Turns out McKinnon, McKinnon knew a lot about what he was doing. Yeah, was- it, that part of it is just amazing. And um, so that really helps the aircraft. Um, it creates a few challenges because if you think about a single-engine aircraft and its left-turning tendency, which is because of P-factor and torque and, and then what they call the swirl or the downstream. Mm-hmm. The swirl effect. The swirl yeah. effect. Well, now you've got two engines. Before, the engines were outboard pointing straight back, so that flow wasn't going over the tail. But now it's interacting with the fuselage. Yeah. So And the, and the control surfaces. So the bottom line is... It's got a very strong left-turning tendency. I mean, really strong. Bring your right foot and make sure you have a 10-pound weight attached to it. (laughs) Well, it takes three. I mean, once you get used to it, you know, you get used to it. But it takes some getting used to. And there's three things you have to do. You have to put in a lot of trim, rudder trim. And you've got to use differential power, a lot more power in the left engine. And thirdly, you just stand on the right rudder. Yeah, that's <laughs> I even considered working out more. <laughs> because so I said, just strap a 10-pound weight to your foot, and you're, you're good to go. So, so uh, yeah, it, that part of it was a challenge. And, and we have an individual, which I will not be named, but came out and flew the aircraft and was pretty proud of his flying skills to the point where Burke was a little annoyed with them and, decided not to give him any pre-instruction. And so he, he got in and took the goose off without any pre-training about the left-turning tendency. And he came back. He was pretty white. He said, Jesus, I thought the P-51 Mustang had a left-turning tendency. It was nothing compared to this thing. So anyway, that, but I'm, and I'm, I'm being negative. I mean, it's not. all so, those things, I mean, what the airplane does, let's talk yeah. about what the airplane does yeah. compared to a, a G21A. So go from about 2,000 pounds of useful load to 53 pounds, 55,300 pounds. Yes, we're, of, we're talking two and a half tons. 
And I mean, even with full tanks. From one 3, ton 000, to two and a half tons. You still got 2,200 pounds once you have full tanks. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It's hard to get it. We've tried to get it over 12,500. We've never gotten it over 12,000, really. Uh, so tremendous weight carrying yeah. capability. The speed goes from uh, piston goose on a good day is about 130 knots. Uh, we have we can hit 210 knots with this pretty regularly. Up I mean, attitude. that's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that is a major. 80, I mean, it's like 80, a different airplane. 80 knot increase. Yeah, it's like a different airplane. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the things it's capable of doing, and then those improved airflow over the rudder, which gives you a lot more rudder authority on the water and, and on the land. I mean, those are all wonderful things. But there's some downsides. The left turn is one of them. And the other thing is when you think about it, you've got uh, control surfaces designed for 130 knots. Now, what happens when you take those to 210 knots? Mm-hmm. Because the pressure force... Is required to is a square of the speed. So yeah. if you double the speed, you have four times the force on the on the control surfaces, and and the forces on the control surfaces are very significant. heavy. Yeah, yeah, very heavy. So we did what all lazy guys did. We put an autopilot in and helps some of the time <laughs> <laughs> for the cross country stuff. And so here you are with no turbine experience, and now all of a sudden you have to learn how to make this airplane go backwards. Yeah, well, that's one of the beauties. You know, we got. We got beta, <laughs> and uh, which is very useful. It is because you can reverse, and um, the I mean, you don't. It's not like trying to take a float plane up on the beach because you got you know you got these wheels and you got a much deeper draw. But what you what you have to compensate for that is this beta reverse thrust, mm-hmm. and so we had to play around with that a little bit. I mean, it's 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 for. For somebody that's used to going forward, it's <laughs> one thing. I, it takes I, a little training to learn how to go backwards, <laughs> and so we took it down. The first time we tried it, we took it down to the Columbia River, and uh, we found an island in the Columbia River, and we were trying to back on it. But the river was moving as we were trying to back, so we had to kind of compensate for the the, the uh, current as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will say that the first few attempts weren't stellar but we got there and uh, we've actually got fairly proficient both burke and i have gotten fairly proficient at it now and been able to to use that feature a number of times yeah one of the things i really like about the grumman albatross is we could back it on the beach you get yeah. somewhere remote and just back it on which makes departure uh very very nice mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh it's time to go out now I mean, you got to exercise this thing so you end up getting your multi-engine c yeah uh and we already talked about Burke's uh, former flying environment with the gooses, which were the geese, which were some of the most demanding and difficult places. You know, if there's any place that's difficult to operate a seaplane, I can't imagine a more difficult place than the Aleutian Islands. Yeah. So where does Doug DeVries so decide to go? <laughs> <laughs> we went to the Aleutian Islands for a major trip. And I'll blame that mostly on Burke because... <laughs> He loves the Aleutian Islands. Yes, he does. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I do know why. Yeah. But it's not immediately obvious when you go when out When you there. get there, you realize it's amazingly beautiful and remote and all the things that we do. Yeah. But uh, yeah. initially, when you're looking at it on paper, you yeah. kind of question it. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we, we took off. I, I was building time in the aircraft and um, flying it by myself and getting used to flying around locally. and But... You know, for any kind of major 
expeditions like that. Um, I really need to have somebody like him along with his experience of particularly the weather and the water conditions out in the Aleutian Islands, which are terrible, uh, terrible all the time, and he, that's when they're good. Life-threatening, uh, to put it very mild, mildly. Yeah. Icing conditions, low ceilings, yeah. big waves, yeah. terrible winds, snow, IFR. I mean, everything you could throw into one mix. Yeah. And, and very remote, so there's not a lot of assistance if you have an issue. Right. Oh, it sounds like a place for Doug to go. Yeah. So, <laughs> away we went. <laughs> Woo-hoo. And the first trip, we did two trips. The first trip, we, we went to Dutch Harbor a little bit farther, but um, that was 2021. And uh, we worked our way up along the BC coast, southeast Alaska. And then, I don't know why, we decided, you know, so this is a difference. You could never do this with Piston Goose, but with the Turbine Goose, we decided just to cut across the Gulf of Alaska. Which is a big haul. against. That's a long haul. Yeah. We went over to Kodiak Island from there. And uh, I remember going over and looking down, and I mean the swells were like 8, 10 feet. I do not want to land <laughs> in this. Like, it's just, <laughs> we're not surviving that. But, you know, we got two, two turbine engines. That's pretty cool. So, And one of the things I didn't say, the dirty secret about the piston goose is that any weight over about 8,000 pounds, it won't maintain altitude on a yeah, single you're engine. Yeah, you're flying it to Orlando. Uh, yeah, you're flying it. The, the turbine goose will maintain fully loaded 12,500 pounds. It will maintain altitude uh, up to 8,000 feet. Which makes it great for this kind of flying. Right. So Gives we, you a great sense of security. Yeah. So that was cool. But we're, we're on the way over, and uh, Burke always starts these things. Now, Doug, there's this island, and I forget what the name of that island was out in the Adacker. middle. <laughs> no, this was out in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska. He goes, oh, this island that I really think we should land on. <laughs> really? Why do we? Well, I don't know. It had some significance. So we, we found this island, and it had a little gravel strip, and we landed. And there was not a soul there, and, but there we were. We were kind of out on our little island in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska. And, <laughs> but anyway, we stayed, we overnighted, I think, in Kodiak, and then we went to Dutch Harbor. and um, Which is uh, made famous by Deadliest Catch. So yeah. If yeah. you, you want to kind of get an idea of the flying conditions, all you have to do is watch Deadliest Catch. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. So there we there we there we were, and um, it's it was really fun because of two things. One, that goose, that my goose, N six four two, had a history. It's famous. It, yeah. it was in Alaska from the mid fifties until almost nineteen ninety. It was operated by uh, Bureau of Land Management (BLM) Office of Aircraft Services, but it flew all over, and people knew it, and they still remember it. I mean, they remember it by that N number. So when we came into Dutch Harbor, it was like, you know, electricity came to Arkansas. Yeah. Everybody homecoming, came out. a big homecoming. And of course, it. Burke's a big celebrity there because he flew these people. I mean, that's the way they got around with mm-hmm. this piston goose. All the old timers yeah. probably had flown with, with yeah. Burke and a They goose. all came out. Because that's the only way to effectively get there. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, everybody was out around the goose and we ended up, taking them for rides out to some of the remote, you know, villages and that kind of thing. And uh, it was it was really fun. So there's this huge history that a lot of, I would say the majority of the population doesn't really realize 
how much history there is with World War II, the Japanese occupation of the Aleutian Islands, and how much fighting we actually did on these islands. It's and you guys got to explore some of that. It's unbelievable, Steve. I mean, so there's, there's really lots of interesting parts, but I see it as four different stories related to the Aleutian Islands. The first is the Aleut people themselves, mm-hmm. who've been Which there go back thousands. centuries and centuries. Yeah. And there was quite a high population of them. If you looked at all the native peoples in Alaska, they tended to thrive more. I mean, they were kind of a higher standard of living, if you will. And part of it was because they were on the sea and they had a lot of sea life. Mm-hmm. For food. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to work as hard for food as the guys up, you know, hunting polar bears and stuff. So they were pretty economically successful. And then in the 1700s, late 1700s, um, uh, Bering, mm-hmm. just Bering, who the Bering Sea is named after, who was a Russian, it's actually Danish-Russian, long story. <laughs> yeah, long story there. <laughs> anyway, he did the first exploration expedition, leaving from Kamchatka and exploring that area. And there's a book written on it called um, Where the Sea Breaks Its Back, and I highly recommend it. It's just amazing. And, and his scientist, um, I'm drawing a blank now, I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, he had a scientist along with him. And uh, they did an exploration of that. But through the course of that exploration, they just, quotes, discovered on the, the Aleutian Islands. But they they found all these sea-bearing animals, uh, mm-hmm. fur-bearing animals, sorry, mm-hmm. like sea otters and that kind of thing. And it was within two or three years, then the Russians started moving in. There was this in. giant fur industry that yeah. evolved. And they started moving up the Aleutians. And the, the fur industry was huge. And they moved all the way up the Aleutians, down southeast Alaska, all the way down to San Francisco. They actually had huh. a fort all the way down there. And so the next story is really that kind of story of the Russian influence. And to this day... There's Still, a village is called Nikolsky. Yeah, really, yeah. an Aleut village called. Nikolsky. If you go to the cemeteries, it's kind of interesting because yeah. you have the Russian crosses and everything, right. and the, yeah. the Russian Orthodox. Yeah, it's all so. There was that, and then of course World War II came along, and that's the story that I certainly had no understanding of how big a deal that was. But the the it was right about the time of Midway, and the Japanese attacked uh, Dutch Harbor unsuccessfully. But we had very rudimentary military defenses out there. There's no roads, and there isn't any roads to this day mm-hmm. to speak of. And we had limited bases out there. So the Japanese gave up, and they went out, and they actually invaded the three farthest westmost islands, which is Attu and Kiska and one other ones. And then the war went on. I think they invaded around May or June of, of 1942. And by... August of 1943, we'd kicked them out of there, but at a massive effort. Yeah. 150,000 troops out there. It's unbelievable the amount of resources that were dedicated to this region. I mean, you think we're fighting the Germans, we're fighting the Japanese. Talk about a worldwide, you know, military front. And here we're putting 150,000 people in these very remote islands, which you're asking yourself, they were just stepping stones to the mainland is right. what the, what they were. Right. But you're talking trench battles, very ugly, brutal temperatures. Uh, you know, the mortality rates um, among both sides were, were uncomprehendable. Yeah. And, and, and the, and, you know, it was all fought because there was no roads. It all fought either with naval or with aircraft. Mm-hmm. And the, 
both sides lost way more equipment and aircraft to the weather than they did to enemy fire, mm-hmm. by far, almost like a 10 to 1 ratio between that. And so, but that becomes the story of the Aleutians because during that time period, all these military bases get built out there, which now provides access for goofballs like us that want to fly a <laughs> goose out there. And there's still a lot of relics uh, there yeah. of all this. Yeah. I mean, you can still find from both sides. There's right. a lot of wrecks right. out yeah. there, yeah. Uh, wreckage. Yeah. But there's buildings that are still standing that if you had to find shelter, <laughs> they're, they're in remarkably preserved condition in some cases. So. Right, right. But it, it's so... We, we've now done two trips. I talked a little about the yeah. first trip. We did a second trip, and I'll probably intermix some of the experiences. But, you know, uh, we're, we, the second trip, we went, way out to, we went all the way to Kiskit, which is, all, is from, from Anchorage is like 1,400 miles. Yeah, so I, I, I want to also stress the distances that we're talking. Not only are we talking really harsh conditions, but we're talking 1,400 miles yeah. out in, in the yeah. ocean. Yeah. And I don't know that people understand the scale of the Aleutians. Yeah. It's uh. just, just, it's huge. So, um, we, um, we were flying out to, uh, Adak, which is an island, maybe let's say two thirds of the way out. And there was a, after the war, the U S built a big military base up there and we're on the way. And Burke starts telling me about this B 24, that was down during the war that's on one of the islands just east of, of ADAC. So we're flying the goose around, and, and we found it. So we buzzed around it and checked it out. Well, there was a herd of caribou there, <laughs> also checking out the B-24. So we went on to um, ADAC, and we landed. And um, ADAC's interesting because back in, they had 20,000 military personnel there at the peak, Unbelievable. And they had built all these um, housing that looked like suburbia from the 1950s and 60s, all these kind of houses. Mm -hmm. And from the air, it looks like, wow, this place is amazing. But the military pulled out in 1990, and there's 50 people living there now. And and the locals just kind of move from house to house when one falls down. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> Some of these it's unbelievable. And you, so when you get down there and start going through the streets, the houses are pretty bad repair because I mean, kind of cheap houses and now haven't been any uh, maintenance for thirty years. But so we land there, and of course Burke knows everybody there, and his buddies come out, and and they're um, one guy was German, one was uh, was Aleut, the airport manager was Aleut, and. Uh, we start telling them about the caribou, and they get all excited. Like, well, we got to go hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all happening unbeknownst to me. I'm kind of working on the airplane. And pretty soon, Burke comes over and says, well, you know, I think we have a plan. You know, these guys want to go hunting. And so, you know, are you okay if we have like a, like a caribou carcass in your airplane? <laughs> <laughs> Just spend 30000 Well, I'm not hours. a wuss. <laughs> but it is. Well, oh, no, they'll quarter it. And they, we got plastic bags and I said, well, that sounds fun to me. So <laughs> off they go and pretty soon they come back with these rifles and these plastic bags and we all pile in the goose and uh, off we go. We go back and we find the B-24 and we land in the salt and we turn the goose around and with beta, we back it onto the, onto the shore. Well, by now the caribou have kind of migrated two or three miles away. And apparently that was too far for hunting because they, 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 
were not interested in chasing the caribou. So the caribou was safe. But we went up and uh, crawled all over the B-24. And later on, I read the story about it. And the, the story about that airplane was that during the, that war, the, the, the pilots there kept telling them how terrible the weather was and how many aircraft they were losing. And the aircraft, or the Air Force brass back in D.C., they're skeptical. So they're finding, oh, these guys losing all these airplanes. I don't know what they're doing. And finally, they send a general out. And he comes out to ADAC, and they put him on his B-24, and they take him on a bombing run to Kiska. Well, on the way back, the weather gets crap, and he can't, the pilot can't get back in ADAC. So he roams around and finally crash lands it. This is the one that we're there mm-hmm. in this valley. And uh, he crash lands the thing, and they all survived, except there was injuries. And then they came out, and they spent a pretty cold night, and then the next morning, a PBY picked him up and rescued him. But that was the last they heard about, you know, losing aircraft to the weather from the Air Force brass back in D.C. And that was the story behind that yeah, particular aircraft. That's amazing. And and this is the stuff, I mean, how often do you get to see a B-24 and, again, to have, you know, the provenance and the history of, yeah. of and getting to learn that and actually touch that and see that airplane, I just... I, I mean, I, I can't tell you when I knew you guys were doing this trip. And of course, we got to publish the story um, in Waterflying Magazine. And I won't forgive you that I wasn't <laughs> on that trip. <laughs> I will not forgive you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I am so envious of the fact that you guys got to do this. And, and it's, I mean, these are the trips that I dream of. And, and thankfully, again, you and I've got to do uh, one, one together, one big one. And, and I've tried to do some on my own. And, and that passion is just, again, I mean, you hear us talk about this and, and you having this experience. And this is such a brief uh, recount of, of what you actually did. Yeah, I was just trying to hit some of the highlights, but but once again, you had a pilot that had flown the airplane at one point. Oh, we, we had that stopped. you ran into uh, on one of the islands. Yeah, we've ran multiple pilots. Yeah, that flown that airplane. When we had it in um, Lake Hood on the way up there, we had it sitting on a ramp, and it's kind of a very demure yellow, bright yellow color. So <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't stand out at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, people were coming out of the woodwork, and the guys would walk up and say, I flew that airplane in 1966 when they had piston engines on and everything. And so we'd take them out to dinner. It was just, just great because that airplane was just connecting people. Yeah. You take it up there, and, and it's a historical figure. And yeah. what an honor to own it and, and it get is. to have people be so thankful and appreciative to see that airplane still flying today. And I'm just a caretaker. So, I yeah. mean, you hear that, but it's true that I was born in 1953. That airplane was built in 1945. So it was eight years old when I was born. And I, maybe I got 10 years left on this planet. I don't know. That goose is going to be going a long time. So, I mean, you literally look at an aircraft that is spanning longer than a human life. Mm-hmm. And it's still a competitive aircraft. I mean, that aircraft is a turbine goose the way it's configured now. It's there a is nothing seaplane. made today that'll handle the seas. Right. For the side, outside of the military with maybe the, the Chinois, yeah. nothing is made today that'll yeah. handle the seas that aircraft will. Uh, handle, will carry the load. I mean, a twin otter won't carry that load, I don't think. I, and I'm going to have someone with, that operates twin otters get, <laughs> They're catch gonna be me, all over you. all over me on that. But, 
uh, you know, again, uh, and it's fat. Well, okay, we'll, we'll qualify that. The twin otter won't do it as fast as the, the goose will. Yeah. And, and, and so you're talking about an airplane that is 70 plus years old right now. Yeah. And that's just phenomenal. And again, to be able to bring it back to life and now extend its life literally indefinitely in the, in the shape that it's in today. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, it's not sitting in a museum. People are getting to touch it. People are getting to smell it. You're getting to explore in it. And you've shared that not only with the people that have traveled with you, um, but as you said, you've, we, we've kind of carpet bombed the media <laughs> with it. <laughs> I thought that was a good analogy. So, you know, we've, I don't, what did we do? Four stories uh, in Waterflying Magazine? At least. <laughs> and then there was one in Sport Aviation, uh, yeah. And so, yeah. And then there's this. And yeah, there's no. a museum of flight. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the bombing runs continue. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm so happy to do that, though, because, again, to be able to share it with a larger audience, to be able to inspire more people with it is so important to me. And that's one of the, the greatest stewardships that I, I feel for the community is to be able to tell these stories and to expose people to the the people and the aircraft that are out there living the dreams and doing these extraordinary things. And that, in my case, um, you know, I, I didn't start with a lot of money. Uh, I started with yeah. passion. And, and you know, the, the famous thing I have is pulling on shirt sleeves. Mm-hmm. And what I tell people is inject yourself into this community and you will be amazed of the doors that open for you. Right. So much it gives back. Oh, it's incredible. And and so I I I hope I'm not preachy on that point. But <laughs> well, I mean the the there's so many fun things that been that aircraft, but you know, I'm an engineer and I get buried in the design and the restoration and all that thing. But it's not it's you got to be careful not to get focused on the machine. I mean, we we get too sometimes too focused on the machine and you get mm-hmm. around other mechanic types and you're just on and on about engines and little things but what it's it's really a vector for human interaction i mean oh, what a in, interesting uh, <laughs> there's an analogy vector i wonder where that came from <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i mean it jeez i mean so many stories I and mean, we went to iceland and ran all these but it gets you out and these people that you find out have similar interests and you're immediately friends with them, and you're over at their place for a barbecue, and you take them up for a ride. And I mean, that's just that's just cool. Yeah, and it's the people, it's the relationships, the friendships that last a lifetime. I mean, yeah. I just find it amazing. I would have never imagined that 2005, I think it was when we actually met, and and when within six weeks we were on this crazy adventure. Right, and here we are, 17 years, 18 years later been that long yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh and i'm still inspired uh i'm still endlessly grateful and and recount our our adventures um and you're still inspiring me and you're still uh a bright light uh and i'm i feel so fortunate that i've been able to experience part of it but again i i want our listeners to realize that this is available to you. You can do this. Yeah. And anybody that 
is in the Seattle You don't have area. to have a turbine, turbine goose to do this. but <laughs> I'm very much invited to come up and see the turbine goose. Up, It's up at Painfield most of the time uh, in Everett. So I can't guarantee a ride, but certainly welcome to come up and see it and talk about it and hear more stories. <laughs> yeah. So what is your favorite memory uh, with the aircraft so far? Um, eating, eating puffin with Siggy in Iceland. That's the next episode. <laughs> so, so this was the Aleutian Island episode. There's also the Bahama episode and oh, the Greenland is Iceland. This, is this restricted to Aleutian? <laughs> well, no, but I, 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 but I want to explain that because the puffin was not in the Aleutian Islands. So that was no. another adventure. Well, no, here's, and, and, here's one related to the Aleutians. Very loosely related. So we were in Dutch Harbor, and what, like I said, when you show up with the, the goose in Dutch Harbor, because of its history there, everybody, you know. And so the local NPR guy, they have an NPR station there. He's like, oh, we got to interview you guys. So we get on, uh, and he interviews Burke and I, and we had a ball. I mean, he, it was just fun. And at the end, he says, where are you guys going next? We said, we're going to Iceland. He goes, oh, the great auk. <laughs> And I didn't know what he meant, you know, but it sounded kind of cool, the great auk. So I went home, and I looked it up, and it turns out the great auk was this big flightless bird, kind of like a penguin, that used to be across the North Atlantic, but it's, but it's extinct now. And the last one was shot in Iceland or the Faroe Islands. <laughs> and so when we went to Iceland, that became our theme was in search of the great auk. We had jackets <laughs> made up with an auk and everything. So when you went there, it, it resonated. Well, I think and we went to this one thing. So we, we went to the Faroe Islands, which is supposedly where the last auk, and, and a guy, we had a guy pick us up, you know, to show us around, and, and he says, what are you guys doing here? And we said, we're, we're, gonna, we're looking for the great auk. And he looks at us kind of funny. He goes, you know they're extinct. And we go, well, you say. You know, <laughs> we're going to find it. So we, you know, of course we had fuzzy pictures of the great <laughs> and everything. We had a great time with it. But. And, and so I'm just going to tease for that episode that yeah. we have yet to record. Yeah. But um, I think the big explanation that will be needed on that episode is how does a man leave Seattle bound for air venture and end up in Greenland, or Greenland and Iceland eating puffins on his way to Air Venture from Seattle. But that will be the next episode <laughs> that, that we do. That here. is a good question. That's really bad navigation. <laughs> so, um, what have we failed to mention before we uh, wrap this up? Uh, we we could go on forever because it's such a fascinating story. What have we failed to talk about that we? should not fail to mention when we're talking about getting the airplane going through the process of restoration, doing the training, and then actually taking it out in the real world and doing a major uh, expeditionary adventure with it? Well, I'm, good question and very broad question. I don't know if I can answer I know, answer. I know. <laughs> but, you know, just step back a 30,000 feet, and I think what was exciting to me, and I hope that can inspire other people, is this whole process of jumping into something with both feet that you don't know what you're getting into, and you probably wouldn't do it when you, after you found out. But it, it turned out into a, a, a beautiful process because of what we learned building that goose 
about sheet metal and all turbine technology. And so we learned things technically. We met interesting people. And then we're able to experience some of the amazing experiences that that thing has given us. So, I mean, just think about that yeah. when you're, <laughs> you know, it's adventure. And yeah. uh, that airplane inspires adventure. So I recently, uh, as we covered on one of the most recent podcasts, we did a little thing from Florida to Maine, over to Brainerd, Minnesota, up to the headwaters in Bemidji, yeah. and then down the Mississippi River with oh, the nice. Super Cub. Nice. And I've had so many people come say, will you guide me on one of those trips? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. Um, Turbine Goose and the Super Cub flying formation. Oh, that, that's going to be a little bit difficult. <laughs> Gonna have to strap on some Jado bottles or something. I don't know, but uh, I hope I get an opportunity to do another adventure with you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Even having these discussions is an adventure in itself, yeah. and uh, to see that smile this many years later, and and again, uh, all the hard work and frustration is worth the smile that I see on your face. Well, thank you, Steve. It's, <laughs> it's really been fun being able to share it uh, with you, and it's it's good to kind of reconnect with you after all these years. Yeah. Likewise, uh, it feels good. Uh, I'm sorry it's been so long. So I hope that you, the listeners, have enjoyed um, uh, this uh, very fascinating discussion, uh, a look into a world that very few people get to enjoy and embark on, and I hope it inspires you to dare to dream and uh, chase those dreams. And uh, please share these episodes with your friends and uh, keep listening. And uh, we'll keep uh, knocking uh, content like this out. Until next time, fly safe and most importantly, fly often. And uh, that'll make you fly safe. So uh, until next time, uh, fly safe and fly often. And we'll see you on the next one. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.